0: All right, we're coming to uh, close to being finished with our study on, on God. We started off with the existence of God, and uh, after the existence of God, we, we talked about the different arguments that uh, were going on with that. The interesting thing that's going on, there's, an, a, there's a Christian apologist. Apologist, I've mentioned this before, but let me just hit it again. An apologist is somebody who uh, basically spends their life defending... Um, the faith. They wouldn't necessarily. A lot of times, they're not. They're not pastors, but they go around. Uh, they'll do uh, lectures and talks. Sometimes they go to uh, state universities. They'll ask, have them come in, and they'll do a, a twenty-minute speech on a topic, and then they let uh, just college students question them. Ravi Zacharias is probably the most well-known Christian apologist out there. Uh, that he's he's more along the conservative vein. That we would uh get along with. But there's one guy out there who's really made a name for himself and considered one of the preeminent ones. His name is William Lane Craig. How I mean, has anybody ever heard of William Lane Craig? William Lane Craig, I'm not a fan of his. Uh he tends to apologize for scripture too much and uh he he was um he's really the apologist that Andy Stanley sort of looks after and is friends with and that kind of thing like that. So uh, William Lane Craig was on uh, Ben Shapiro's show. Ben Shapiro is the young Jewish political uh, commentator. Uh, he's a guy that uh, does some great work as far as the political spectrum is, is, is uh, concerned and, and really tears apart liberal arguments and liberal law, uh, uh, way, the way that they think and, and stuff with, with common sense. Well, he has a show on Sundays, and he interviews a different person. He interviewed John MacArthur. I've talked about that interview several times. We interviewed William Lane Craig, and William Lane Craig—he just kept throwing questions at him from a Jewish, unsaved Jewish perspective. And uh, I just listened to that, and I was like, "This guy is just fumbling all over himself," because he tries to defend God and defend the Christian faith from a point of philosophy, trying to get across to somebody that they should accept Christianity based on the fact that not because the Bible says so, because it makes sense. Um, of course, that to me is, is the weakest approach to do so, because it's only through the power of the Word of God that can pierce the, the, uh, the human soul. Um, but he talked about these, the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the theological argument, and the moral argument. And he admitted, he said, none of these arguments actually point to the God of the Bible. Which then he backed up and he said, well, he thinks that the moral argument would, would appeal to the God of the Bible. The moral argument saying this, that we, we can prove that God exists by the fact that man has a sense of right and wrong built within him. If man has a sense of right and wrong, where did that come from? Because if you come from a strictly evolutionist point of view, they have no basis or starting point for morality. Because man is, a, is, a, is an accident, it's a cosmological accident. And therefore, who is the discerner or who sets up the rules of right and wrong or what's considered right and what's considered wrong? And that's where you get where we are today because whenever you infect a society with that kind of attitude, then what you think is right is right for you and what you think is wrong is wrong for you and what this person thinks is right for you except for whenever it's just disgusting to somebody. You see the the hypocrisy there. They like to say that about them, but then whenever they become the, the larger voice, then if you don't agree with them, you need to be eradicated from society, which is way things are heading now. That's where the landscape is today, because if you don't jump on board, for instance, the abortion ban in Alabama, you could say, well, for Alabamans, this is what they would have said 20 years ago. For the Alabamans, that's right for them, and it's wrong for us. But no. No, you can't take a woman's right to choose to kill her baby. That's just wrong. Well, who said it's wrong? Since when did... Who, who sets up this idea of moral superior, uh, superiority? And so that's where it comes to, well, God must have. And if God must have, then that's how we prove that there is God. Because in, a, in the human being is a sense of right and wrong. And now we know from Romans 1 that they, uh, they suppress that. They suppress that, and that's how they continue. Man continues to be sinful and de- delve into wickedness. Well, that's, that's what we covered first. Then after that, we talked about the names of God. After the names of God, we went on to uh, the attributes of God, right? Yeah, the attributes of God. We spent a long time in the attributes of God covering them, and uh, this is what I'm doing with the kids on Sunday mornings now. I'm talking about Uh, I I decided... I spent two years going through the Bible stories, and Miss Nancy, uh, when she started... She was doing the Bible stories with them, too. They've gotten the Bible stories, I think, so I'm going to start teaching them systematic theology. And you think, oh, kids can't grasp that. I guarantee you they can. Now, I'm setting it down on their level. I started off, I spent an entire lesson teaching them what doctrine was. So I just went over it. What is doctrine? So we go in there, I say, what's doctrine? They'll say, teaching. I said, so what's the doctrine of the Bible? They say the teaching of the Bible. I said, all right, so what's the doctrine of God? It's what the Bible teaches about God. And so that's where we're at today. Last week, we covered God is holy and God is eternal. And today, I'm going to do the omnis with them. God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, and God is everywhere at all times. And uh, I think that they can grasp that. Uh, My dad taught me the doctrine of the Trinity whenever I was four years old. And I still remember those lessons today. I don't remember much before I was nine years old, but I remember those lessons. And uh, I think that you can really plant things into young minds, and it will cement there. And uh, so we're, we're working our way through the doctrine of God with them now. Um, but uh, the attributes of God. Then after that, we covered the Trinity, and then the decree of God. God's decree is His eternal plan, whereby according to His decorative will and for His glory, He foreordained everything that come to pass. That's going to be a hinge on what we're moving in today with the problem of evil. So uh, the next we covered the holiness of God, God's surprising holiness, God's exalted status, and God's moral perfection. Then lesson seven was divine providence, which we covered last time. This is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. What's the difference between divine providence and the divine decree? Divine decree says that God decreed it. God set it in order. The divine providence states that in God's decree, he is working through those things on a personal level. God just doesn't throw it out there and say, this is how it's going to happen. God plans it out and has it happen according to a reason, a purpose, and a plan that will bring glory to himself. That's the working of divine providence. It's not some just God up there that wants to put everything into place and just see how it works out. No, He works it out because he has a plan for it to bring glory to his name. And so this is what we're going to start with today. This is what we're going to cover today. God and the problem of evil. God and the problem of evil. This has melted minds for generations, okay? Many a theologian have have, uh, written uh, books and chapters, articles about this situation. So let's see what we can do with this. Christian scientists attempt to solve the problem of evil by denying its existence, Christian science is, is well, John MacArthur says. It's like uh, grape nuts. It's neither grape nor nuts. Christian is, science is neither Christian nor it's science. It's ridiculousness. Mary Baker Eddy and all the other different names that she had, because she married up to 100 different guys, uh, came up with this idea. And It's basically you can heal yourself. There's no reason why you shouldn't be at peak health and all of these things. Any time that you are sick or there's something wrong with you, it's because there's a problem in your mind and your thinking. So therefore, if that's the case, then there's no problem of evil. Arminians and process theologians take a different route around the problem of evil. Both, in effect, deny the sovereignty of God in one way or another to clear God of the charge of the author of sin. They erode his omnipotence and or his omniscience. Either he knew about evil's future existence when creating the world, and though desiring otherwise was powerless to prohibit it, which is what Arminianism teaches, or he was a God who didn't know what he was doing when he created the universe, which is what process theology teaches. So, did he not know what was going to happen? Or did he know what was going to happen and couldn't do anything about it? See, either route you take with that, you're taking away God's omnipotence or God's omniscience. But we declare and we believe and we uphold the fact that God is omniscient and God is omnipotent. So if those two things hold true, where does evil come into play? And do we lay that at the feet of God? Is he responsible? John Frame, who was a uh, great apologist, um, sets it up this way. Okay, Premise number one, if God were all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil. Okay? Premise number two, if God were all good, he would desire to prevent evil. So, conclusion number one, if God were both all-powerful and all-good, there would be no evil. However, there is evil, right? So this brings us to conclusion number two, therefore, there is no all-powerful, all-good God. This is how the problem of evil works, okay? This is the argument that somebody may bring up to you. All right? This is how it works. So, how do we, as Christians, believing what we believe about the Bible, everything that we've covered up to this point in our study of God, reconcile this? What do we do with this? Do we just say, "Ugh, oh, I don't know, and walk away? Does this stump us? Okay, well, my goal this morning is for you to have such an understanding of this that you leave today, and if everybody, anybody ever comes up with this question, you are not stumped. You actually may have a little smile come across your face and say, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk. Okay? So, evil has in view both physical, which is catastrophes, illness, pain, death, and moral evil. All right? So, evil has two aspects. We have first aspect of evil is what you would not cause. Meaning uh, hurricanes, natural disasters, uh, sickness, cancer, those types of things. It's, it's part of evil. It's part of wrong. It's part of sin. Okay, Not directly caused by you or somebody, but it's just part of the fallen creation. Okay? The curse on the earth. The second part of evil is direct caused by man. That is, sin. Okay? Evil is not some runaway element in the universe, some quirk over which God has no control. The Christian response to the problem of evil is called theodicy. Theodicy. Now that's a different word you've probably not used in your vocabulary. Theodicy. It comes from the Greek words theos and dike. Which means a judicial hearing of God. Alright? So theodicy Is basically putting, what do you do when you put God on trial when it comes to this problem of evil? So, what is a Christian theodicy of evil? So, it's sort of like your viewpoint on this subject. That's what theodicy is. Okay? So, first of all, point number one is a biblical theodicy. Biblical theodicy. What does a biblical theodicy contain? Well, first and foremost... Scripture never assumes that God must explain his actions, but rather assert that he has the right to be trusted. God never explains, it never, never tries to explain himself. Oh, I meant to tell you to turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I'm not going to try to improve upon Brother Steve's handling of Romans chapter 9 last year whenever he went through this chapter. I thought everything that he did was great, but I think it's a good point to come back to this chapter with dealing with this subject to remind us what Paul teaches, because I think the key to understanding the problem of evil is in these verses. Okay, That's the first thing that we have to understand when approaching this subject, is that Scripture never assumes that God must explain His actions, but rather assert that He has the right to be trusted. Why does God owe an explanation to us? Who are we to look back at the Creator and demand an answer? Now, when you do things, when you did things as a parent, raising your children, you didn't always have to explain yourself. When you told your child and they were getting ready to cross the road, and you knew that that was dangerous, and you said stop with an urgency or a, a command, and they didn't, and then you go and grab that little arm to keep them from gawking into danger, you don't sit there afterwards, and they turn around and say, why? Well, it's because, no, you don't have to explain yourself. You're the parent. Now, there are situations, I'm not trying to uh, tear down uh, parenting roles. You do, ex- you know, talk to them and, and, and explain things. as part of teaching and, and raising children, but... There is no demand in those types of situations that you have to explain yourself. That's, that's why at young ages you, you have to get them to obey you because whenever you have that kind of situation, they need to listen because their life could depend on it. God is much more than that. He has no reason at all to explain himself to his creation, human beings. But what grace and mercy He has bestowed upon us to give us the Bible that explains so much about Himself and what He does. So, next, let's move on to a biblical perspective on evil. A biblical perspective on evil. God vindicates His justice by helping people see history from His perspective. Okay? First of all, you have to notice God gives perspective on the past. God gives perspective perspective on the past Uh, we could use several illustrations on this in the Old Testament Uh, the children of Israel and uh, the exodus out of Egypt with Pharaoh all of the things that they went through with that now in the Old Testament we have the explanation doesn't mean that they did now let's put that in our current view we look at things and we want explanations it doesn't mean God gives them to us. But we have a perspective from God on the past with things in the Old Testament. I think the best one is Job. Do you realize we look at the story of Job because we know everything and how it turns out. At the end of the book of Job, Job never, never knew about the conversation between God and the devil and that God held him in a high esteem. Never is Job told by God that God thought so much of him. A man who is perfect and upright and escheweth evil. That is never said to Job. But when Job questions God, God looks at Job and says, Who are you to question me? Do you tell Behemoth which way to go? Or Leviathan? Did you put Leviathan in the sea? And he talks about all these different things. I mean, we see, however, we see the perspective, God's perspective, from those stories. And we see how God was working in those. So therefore, we can get a little bit of idea because of those evil. What was all that to do? It was to glorify God. You look at the children of Israel leaving Egypt. All of it was then you come to whenever they're in the wilderness or after they are established as a nation. And all through the Old Testament, when it comes to the nation of Israel, they're always doing what? They're always harking back to what God did and brought them out. And it's always this you've forgotten about it. You've forgotten about it. You need to remember. You need to remember. And they always forgot. But it was all about God's perspective to bring glory to Himself over these things. All right? So we have God gives us His perspective from the past, God gives perspective on the present. All right? If you're in Romans 9, we can look, uh, you may just need to turn one page over, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. What is the perspective from the presence, that the promise that we have today? That whatever evil comes, affects our personal life, we know that those are things working together for good according to His purpose. All right? So we see a perspective from the past in the Old Testament. We see we're given a perspective, God's perspective, on the present in Romans. Now look over to Romans 9. Let's start reading in verse 6. I want to deal a little bit with Romans 9 with this subject here. Romans uh, 9, we'll start reading in verse 6. "...not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel." Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall, I, shall thy seed be called. That is, they are which of the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise at this time. Will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. So, what we're about to start talking about, getting on in these verses, is God tells us the reason why he ordained evil. Okay? Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So what are we seeing in this verse? We're seeing Paul deal with this issue of election and predestination, God electing certain to be saved and... Not a group of people that will be saved. So we're seeing this play out and Paul's dealing with this subject. So watch where it goes. Verse 12. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid... May it never be, meaning this. No, there's no unrighteousness with God. God can say, I've loved Jacob and I hated Esau, and there's no unrighteousness in God. All right, so verse number 15. For he saith, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So it has nothing to do with what man does. It's all in God's hands. It's what God wants to do. Verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Was Pharaoh and the Egyptians, what they were doing, evil? Yes. They had enslaved, they were very cruel to them. And what does God say about that? He says in verse 17, For the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show, here it is, I might show my power in thee, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Jay Adams calls this the grand demonstration. The reason for evil is God's demonstration for his power, his wrath, his love, his grace, his mercy. Without evil, those are never displayed. How do you have love and how can you understand love without the absence of it? How can you have grace without those who don't deserve it? Mercy. That's what we're... And during our family worship time, we're, I'm being, every week we sing the song we're singing this morning, His Mercy is More, and we sing grace greater than our sin. And I am working on getting our girls to understand the, what grace and mercy is. So every week we just go, What's mercy? What's grace? Mercy is undeserved punishment. How do you put mercy on display unless somebody deserves punishment? And how does somebody deserve punishment unless there is some type of evil committed? Without evil, mercy doesn't exist. Grace doesn't exist. Okay? Okay uh verse eighteen, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth that's tough that's tough verse nineteen thou wilt say unto me, why doth ye find fa- why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will I love Paul here because paul's in it's it's as if this argument is still, has been around since Paul. I mean, Paul is writing this anticipating a conversation he's probably had several times with people. The same thing that I put up on the screen earlier about if God is all good and God is all powerful, but yet evil exists, then how do we reconcile that? That is not something new. This is being asked of Paul back, the, back then. And so Paul here is anticipating those questions. How awesome is this? He says, That you're going to say unto me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? He said exactly what I said at the beginning. He said, Who are you to talk against God? It's like the, the pot saying to the potter, How did you make me this way? Verse 21 Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? Whoa, Paul. <laughs> What? This is why I see these, fat, these verses, and when Brother Steve went through this, I'm like, how did I go so long not knowing this was in the Bible? This is hardcore. Paul says, hey, stay with me just a second. What if? Just what if? God wanted to show His wrath and His power in doing so decided to with endure evil and sin for a time. See, here's something that we have to, as Christians, understand about evil. While it may disgust us, while it may hurt us, it hurts God an infinite more amount. You don't like death? You don't like the passing of a loved one? He does it a million times more than you don't. You don't like the sin of somebody betraying you, or the sin that you see that is flaunted on television today, that is flaunted in the news, where people are so proud of murdering infants, people are proud of displaying their wicked lifestyles all over and think that you should get on the right side of history, you don't like that? God dislikes it or disdains it or hates it a million times more than you do. Because where we may be disgusted with it or a personal betrayal may hurt us, every sin, every act of evil is directly an affront to to him, it's all personal to him. Do so you think we have to put up with evil? He has to endure it on a personal level ever since creation started. Why would he do that? Why? Well, Paul says, what if he decided to do that to put on display his wrath and power? what if? are we ones that can look at God and question his decision see it all has this idea of, of, of thinking and if 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 this is if this is frustrating to your process of thinking you have to understand about your process of thinking you still hold yourself in too high esteem when you have a problem with this about the way God wants to do things, we still hold ourselves in too high of an esteem. We still think too much of ourselves, which is our first and foremost problem. You see people all the time who struggling with this sin problem or struggling with this sin problem. They may have a problem with lying, or they may have a problem with anger, or they may have a problem with, with this, or, or lust, or, or pornography. Or th- It all comes back to one major problem. Those are all branches of the tree the root of the problem is pride. It's selfishness. It's pride. Okay? Paul says that God endures with long-suffering the vessels or pots or jars that were fitted for destruction in order to demonstrate and make known His wrath. Likewise, sin entered the world so that He might make known the enormous wealth of His glory by pouring out His mercy on the vases designed beforehand for eternal life. It is instructive to note that the verb used 11 times in the New Testament occurs in verse 17 in the middle voice. This form of the verb means to demonstrate for myself, for my benefit, or on my own account. Plainly, Paul is saying that divine judgment on Pharaoh and Israel served God's own interests. It is by decreeing evil's existence that both objects could be attained. God's wrath and power Directly released against evil men and angels display a side of his nature that could not that could be known in no other way. So Paul's response in verse 20 is in two parts. First is a rebuke. A rebuke. He says, O man, who art thou that replies against God? It's a rebuke. He's saying, who do you think you are? That leads to a reason. A reason. A reason. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Shall the creation say to the creator, Why have you made me this way? That's just backward thinking. Each is couched as a counter question. God is the determiner of what is right and wrong and what is or is not fair. He determines that. The charge of unfairness could be sustained only if you deserve something from God that he fails to give. Think about that. That hit me. I was read that in J. Adams' book, The Grand Demonstration. I was like, whoa. Think about this. Somebody may read this and say, how could God decree some to go to heaven and some not to accept him? That's not fair. That's unfair. Okay? The charge of unfairness is only sustained if you deserved something from God that he did not give. So the only way that God could be unfair in that is if you deserved grace. How oxymoronic is that? Grace is undeserving favor. It's not grace anymore. But we have this idea and theologians and Christians walking around the day that says... No, I don't like this because it's not fair. You don't understand grace then. Decreeing sin, uh, some, some that, that, that have this view of, of this evil, they say this. They will say, decreeing sin makes God the author of sin or responsible for it. Decreeing the existence of sin makes God neither. Alright, for instance, God decreed water, dry land, mountains, birds of the air, but is God water? Is God dry land? Is God a bird? No. Decreeing sin does not make him a sinner. He decreed the entire creation, but must be distinguished from it. Okay? So, that's Romans 9, where I wanted to take you from there. all right? so let's move on. We talked about God giving a perspective on the past, on the present. Now, He gives a perspective from the future. What is the perspective of the future? What do we get when we look at the Bible and see our eschatology? We see this. What is the perspective? When Christ reigns in perfect righteousness, there will be no more problem of evil. Because the perspective that God gives us from the future is that evil will have its final day. It will be eradicated. It will be gone. And in that day, and as it is today, God will be glorified for it. Scripture provides proper perspective by seeing as the means by which God gives a new heart to believers. All right. So next, I want to deal with this, this compatibilistic theodicy. Remember what I said theodicy was. Theodicy is the way a Christian thinks about this issue of evil. So, what is compatibilistic theodicy? Compatibilism holds that when properly defined, human free will and divine determinism are complementary ideas. That is, it is possible to accept both without being logically inconsistent. All of those big words to say this. When we talk about God's divine decree and God's sovereignty over here, and we talk about man's decision, or man's volition, or man's being having a choice over here, man being held responsible, while they seem to us like they're contradictions, it is a compatibilistic idea that does not bring together any inconsistencies. Why? Why? Well, because God is God, and that's how He Created it. That's why he revealed it to us in the Bible. So, how do we deal with this when it comes to, and this is the reason for, not the main reason. The main reason is because we need to know everything we can. Peter tells us to have uh, give an, be ready to give an answer of the hope that worketh in you. So we need to know these things. We need to work these things out. But, most likely, these will come up in interactions with an unbeliever. So when we're talking to an unbeliever, what's the first and foremost thing that should be on our minds? Evangelism. Okay. So how do we work theodicy and evangelism? As one presents God's theodicy, one must not fall into the trap of pandering to what unsaved man thinks is best for his happiness, but must seek to call people from sinful self-centeredness to humble, submissive repentance from sin and faith in the true God through Jesus Christ. So, and I'm going to give you a summary statement. You may be, your mind may be all over the place, and I told you I wanted you to end with this, of having an understanding of where to go with this if this question comes up. I'm going to give you that in just a minute. But when talking to an unbeliever in this subject does come up, this is what you need to keep in mind while you have an answer for it and you may the the situation may call for you to give the answer you need to understand this spiritual things are to those that are spirit and the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit the only thing that is going to penetrate their mind and their heart is the power of the gospel okay so you do not need to get bogged down with answering all of these different things you need to have short answers for them But you need to always work it back to the gospel. Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. He died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. And that is the only thing that will penetrate their hardened heart. This answer is not going to suffice them. Okay? So, what is the summary of this? What is the summary of this? The conclusion is this. Evil exists in God's world because it serves the holy purpose of enabling God to demonstrate His grace, mercy, as well as His power and wrath. Why is evil exist? If God is sovereign, and God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful, why do we have evil? Because it serves God's purpose, His holy purpose, and able to demonstrate his grace, mercy, power, and wrath. It is, and I love how Jay Adams put this the grand demonstration. It's the grand demonstration. Okay, that is, I know I went fast, okay? I did go fast there. Um, we have about five minutes. We could end it, or does anybody have a question? Okay, all right. We are going to move on. We are pretty much, let me say this. I would say we are, we are finished with what this study of God, sort of finished. Because from, here, from the rest of the time, it may, ta- it may just take one Sunday, it may take two Sundays. But what, I'm, what I want to do as a conclusion to the study is show us how we take this knowledge and use it to glorify God. How do we then take this and glorify God with this knowledge. Because we don't want to be bogged down as people that just have a whole lot of head knowledge, but no working... I mean, what's the point of all this? Okay? So that's what I want to end up with. And next week is a fellowship, so we'll finish it up after that. And then we're going to get back into uh, our biographies study. Uh, We did up to um, 13. We went from Clement of Rome... Last time I went up to the 1300s, and so uh, we're going to do part two of Men of a Great God, and we're going to do the Reformers. And so I have about 14 or 15 guys, some of them that you know very well, some of them you probably never even heard of their name, uh, but they played a major role that God used during the Reformation period. Okay? So we'll do that after we finish this study on God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You are a great... Wonderful God, and we are thankful that we are a part of your demonstration of your grace and mercy and power and wrath. And we pray that we can honor you in our lives and lift up your name. We pray this morning that those things that we do here together as a church family continues to lift up and glorify you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.